You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of May, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Tuck. On today's show, Italian President Sergio Mattarella says that his country will likely get a neutral caretaker government after two months of failed coalition talks. My guests, Joy Lodico and Quentin Peel, will be discussing Italian politics and asking whether there are some other countries who would benefit from some caretaking in the corridors of power. Then... In Britain, the country's first private police force is set to be rolled out across the nation, following its success in three of London's wealthiest neighbourhoods. How much can we trust private companies to support police forces faced with cuts? Plus, we'll also discuss a new suggestion for redistributing wealth between older and younger generations and the worst ever diplomatic blunders. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Andrew Tuck. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, uh, Joy Lodico, columnist at the London Evening Standard, and Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and contributor for the Financial Times. Welcome both to the programme. We're going to start today in Italy, where President Sergio Mattarella says that the country faces fresh elections or a neutral caretaker government until the end of the year. No single party or alliance won a majority in March's general election, and coalition talks have failed to produce a government. Quentin, uh, the Italian example isn't uh, unusual. You know, We had a, a period where Belgium, I think, almost went a whole year without a, a proper government and had to kind of muddle, muddle through. Uh, are caretaker governments good, bad? Does it kind of show that actually many countries can kind of fumble on actually without anyone at the helm? I think the Belgian example is wonderful. I think it was actually at least 18 months and the country was essentially run by the central bank and I'm sure that would cause people who don't like uh, experts to say, oh my God, this is utterly dreadful. The economy did better than ever. The country was actually quite sane for a while. <laughs> it was actually ahead of the EU averages uh, yeah, when it came that. out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, go back to Italy. Now, the first thing one must realise about Italy is they have had total political chaos almost for my entire lifetime. I mean, the Governments have never lasted more than a few months at most. And uh, so they've had terrible trouble keeping stable governments together. Now, they've got a classic situation now where none of the parties can stand each other and nobody wants to be in government together, and yet nobody's got a majority. And I think that the, the president is probably being really rather sensible and saying, come on, you know, you're a useless show. We'd better have another go. The trouble is, I don't think it's going to prove anything. And so I like his idea of having a neutral government. The best government Italy's had in my living memory was Mario Monti from 2011 to 2013. And how do you even put together a caretaker government? Would the Italians kind of choose a kind of a board of wise people or would they select people from political parties, do we think? Or? I think the president would probably select a prime minister and tell him to choose his own people. And, and Joey, when you look at other countries that have been in this situation, again, are they kind of... We, you know, we'd hate to say this because it's not very democratic, but actually, are these appointed governments actually rather good at their job? 
Well, I think probably the best example is China, which um, you can uh, dispute whether it's a good government or not, but it's certainly doing far better than um, much of the Western world at the moment in running its countries. Um, I mean... you know, there is nothing neutral about Italian politics at the moment. And the idea of actually placing a neutral government within in the centre of it to actually run it will itself be highly controversial. And as Monty discovered, um, when he did, in fact, you know, he ran the country incredibly well. He then went to the election uh, and I think was pretty much the bottom candidate to be prime minister because the country has to bludgeon. Uh, the person who makes all those reforms, but also stands against the idea of democracy. Democracy is still incredibly important for the Western world. Um, And I can see why we would not actually be encouraging technocratic governments. Politics is actually emotional. Um, They may run very well, but um, there are still human passions involved. I I think that, I mean, the classic case where you need something like this, where a country faces... uh, a mega issue that is just, quotes, unquote, too difficult to deal with. What am I thinking of? How about Brexit? I mean, this is a country crying out for actually a neutral government to try and make some sanity out of the total mess that the Conservatives and the Labour Party have got themselves into. So actually, we have a classic example right on our own doorstep. If you've got a major constitutional issue, the other one I would possibly uh, look at would be Spain. I I mean, there's a country that is in danger of falling apart because it's so politicised. So it, it has to be finite. It has to be for a very defined period of time to do a very defined job. And um, We're not going to have it in this country because everybody's gone completely bonkers over Brexit. But nonetheless, if you said, right, you're in office for three years to deliver, that would be good. Uh, Joe, you, you talked there about technocratic government, and I guess that for the Italians, you know, the, the, we know from when they went to the polls, they've you know, they've backed the Five Star Movement, they've they've backed the Northern League, they've backed these these parties uh, on the the various edges of Italian politics. If you form a technocratic government, oddly, the middle always kind of wins, isn't it? You get a kind of a, a centrist government that comes together who just rules on the practicalities and doesn't really bother with, the, as you said, the social issues that these that have swept these parties uh, up through the kind of electoral forces uh, is that the, is that the real danger of these things that you do end up having a kind of conservative banking technocratic government um yes and no i mean you still have to i mean it gives you the opportunity to drive through reforms knowing that you're going to be incredibly unpopular it also knows that you know p- politics is a pendulum and when the pendulum is swinging that violently in fact you need something in the center for people to begin to think well should we gravitate again towards trying to actually win a majority i mean the failure in italy is that neither party ultimately succeeded and the reason they can't really talk to each other um is that they are so di- diametrically opposed. I mean, you've got a radical left versus an incredibly robust anti-immigrant right wing, and they share very few policies other than, ironically, they've both sort of slightly softened their position towards staying in the EU. Um, so technocracy will work, and it's a sort of temporary glue. I- I'm, I'm half Italian. I grew up listening to Italian elections, just being absolutely befuddled by what was going on. And I'm not quite sure why this country has never really come to peace with, you know, just two, two majority political parties, but it just can't seem to manage it. Yeah, well, Quentin, the president, you know, he, he seems to have, in, in the interview he gave, kind of really lamented that, you know, these people just can't get their acts together. But Joy points 
something interesting there that when you go to Italy, you realize that that's in a way, in a way where these companies that make up brand Italy are so successful because they've kind of just got on with the job of not relying on central government. They're very independent minded. They're often very rooted in a town. They're, 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 they have deep regional connections. Is is there a kind of a, a case for arguing that you know the success of Italy is actually in, in, in large sense is more disconnected from the central government than, than in other European countries? Because they succeed in spite of the government, yeah. not because of it. Yeah. Well, they're, and, they're also one of the last countries to actually coalesce as a country in Europe. I mean, there's still a sort of set of micro-states until yeah. 120 years ago. Indeed, years so ago. the Liga, this right-wing Liga, is effectively a northern Italy party that doesn't trust southern Italy at all. Except it's had to start being nice to southern Italy now because they've dropped <laughs> the north title because they're trying to actually win for a change. But they don't mean it, I suspect. And not being mean to the Italians, but I presume that's also why many Italians were kind of not so keen on paying their taxes because they, they didn't see the reason to support central government if central government wasn't delivering for them. So it made it as a, a very acceptable culture to be kind of tax-free Italians. I think that's fair. And I think it's also a reason why for, for so many decades Italians have actually loved the European Union. What's a bit up, up disturbing now is that actually there has been a growth of sort of Euro scepticism. But in the days when I used to be in Brussels, the Italians were as passionately pro-European as anybody. Remember, remember Altiero Spinelli, who believed passionately in the um, European Parliament and democracy at European level, precisely because nobody trusted democracy at the Italian level. Well, we're going to move on now because we're coming to the UK where an influential think tank has proposed that every person in the country should receive £10,000 or roughly $13,500 when they turn 25. The payment is intended to redistribute wealth at a time when young people need it the most to find housing or to start a business. It's also being touted as an effort to reduce resentment towards older generations who've done better out of the housing markets and pensions than those who came after them. Joy, you support this move? Uh, do I support this move? Uh, I, I think I do support this move just, but only um, uh, as a way of slightly knocking the uh, pensioners and the baby boomers, who in fact I think have had an incredibly easy life. Um, if you are... Uh, if you are, you could sort of have a counter argument saying um, 30, 40 years ago, taxes were incredibly high. Um, you, you know, people paid a hell of a lot into the state. But under Thatcher, uh, all our taxes started to drop. We all started buying houses. There was a housing boom. And a generation, and that generation has got vastly rich and actually has static wealth that will not move down. Coupled with that is the fact the pension age is still stuck at around 60, I think it's creeping up slowly, 65, 67. So we've poured lots of money into the NHS. Uh, life now goes on until around 80. Um, you know, you're essentially funded by the government for 10 or 15 years of your life if you're a pensioner. And yet you have a whole generation of kids who are really struggling just to even start their lives. If you flip that round, if you said to the Daily Mail, we're going to give um, millennials a pension from the age of 20 to 33, there would be uproar in the streets. Um, and on that basis, I think actually the, the young do actually deserve some sort of kickback. I'm not sure this is quite the right one. Uh, Quentin, would it make any difference, £10,000? 
I don't think it's enough. I mean, actually, the, the difference, the um, the effect, precisely the effect Joe's talking about is, is, is too dramatic to be sold by little bits of sticking plaster like this. I mean, yes, I plead guilty. I am a baby boomer, absolutely classic baby boomer. I've had a very good life. My house is worth a ridiculous amount more now than it was when I started in the housing market. And my pension is perfectly good, thank you very much. I want to pay back actually a bloody great slice of what, in fact, I can't go to my grave with in order to get the next generation on their feet. But they need it now. And in a way, that's part of the problem. I think the trouble with these sort of financial tinkering is... There is a problem in the housing market that needs to be dealt with. One, not enough houses. Two, I think we should be taxing property. We should be taxing the increase in the value of property and ploughing that money back into the system. We've got to take this ridiculous hot air out of the property system. So there's a real problem there which compounds the generational divide. It's also a political problem because a lot of it actually is about council tax, our local property tax, where successive governments have refused to change the ban. So if you're in a house that's worth, um, I can't remember, somewhere between one and two million, doesn't really matter once you're above one million your 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 property tax remains exactly the same and the houses are now worth two three four five million so those people who are sitting in very expensive properties are not actually contributing on the basis of value anymore they're contributing just on you know what the values were i think it was last measured 25 or 30 years ago Okay, so that's all, all, all nice. And, and I can introduce you, uh, Quentin, on the way out to a few people who might help you with, with, uh, <laughs> that, with the redistribution of your wealth. I've got five of my own. Um, okay, <laughs> here's the counter-argument. Surely the, the, the baby boomers who were born 45 up until the early 60s, they grew up in, for example, here in the UK, in post-war Britain, in the 50s, where their parents scrimped and saved. They didn't have the quality of life that many younger people have now. Sure, they may be in a rented accommodation, but... That wasn't exactly the easiest time for them either. And that's when they, they laid down the, you know, their savings. And also, it's not their fault, is it, Joy, that they bought a house you know, maybe 20 years ago for £100,000 and it's now worth a million. That's, that's the system. That's a system that's been played by the politicians. They didn't do anything wrong. They're not millionaires. There's no way that they will get that cash. So, so it's not their fault that the system ran away and lots of that money that came into the system was from foreign investors, from, you know, that's the government's fault, not the, not the individual's fault. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, it goes back to Quentin's point about wealth locked in assets. And we seem to have become incredibly comfortable with that as an idea after Thatcher decided everybody should own, own their own house. I mean, it's actually, a, it's about the psychology of Britain, that your home should be your castle. Um, I mean, in particular in cities, uh, I believe renting is a, a far better option. And in fact, we should spend more time looking at making sure, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, making sure rent is fair rather than giving everybody help to buy um, you know, checks because renting creates a kind of mobile fluid system which really helps in terms of employment when your life stages change, expansion and so forth. But we have now, the country has changed into this house owning. Yeah, uh, I mean, it used to, it, 100 years ago, it was 20% privately owned and 80% rented. And we're now at the opposite end of the statistics. But then you get into this this situation, don't you, Quentin, where you're, there's someone coming around knocking on your house and saying, excuse Quentin, it's about time you moved out of your house and shared it with a lot more people. That's the Russian Revolution. That, that isn't going to go down, not just with Daily Mail readers, but with most people who've become emotionally attached to their houses. 
of course there's money locked up in them, but you can't shove people out their front door and say, I'm, I'm taking your house because it could be divided up into five. But you wouldn't have that problem if you had a lower proportion of home ownership. I mean, if you contrast Britain today with Germany today, Britain today, I don't know, what is it, 70% home ownership, Germany today, 70% rented accommodation. And the psychology is simply the opposite. In Germany, it is regarded as being more secure, not to have all your assets tied yeah, up. Yeah, but hold on. Aren't you undermining your whole argument here? Because, you know, if, if that's the case, that it's great to rent, why why bother giving them £10,000 towards putting down a deposit on a house? You just say, bad luck, Charm, the game's changed. It was a, a weird anomaly that everybody bought their houses 20, 30 years ago. We now live in a generation rent, and we should embrace it. Yeah, but the 10000 I think, should go into the housing market. That's crazy. Well, it's because it, it is prescriptive. It's one of the it's, things. It's, 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 it's well, a pension housing. It's pension, which is actually very sensible, or, in fact, repaying student fees, which is all setting up a new business. Or so setting, all of those would be more sensible than putting it into housing. And I think setting up a new business, I mean, there's sort of a new wave of entrepreneurship and everybody having their little side hustles at the moment. And it may kind of create a kind of flowering of exciting new businesses in that particular generation. Uh, I doubt it because it, it feels to me like another another middle class tax because you, it's like saying, give me £10,000, I'll give it to these young people, but I'll only give it to young people who are going to start a business, you know, potentially buy a house or put it into a pension. There are lots of people, if you gave them £10,000, they would spend it on clothes for their kids, uh, getting rid of the damp in their bedroom. You know, though there is a poverty level that that £10,000 is not directed at. It's, it's directed, in a way, you know, David Willits and team who have written this report, I think they've got an eye on their own children. <laughs> <laughs> or, or that that telling phrase, they don't want to be hated because they are the baby boomers, you know. So I think this is actually trying to buy off a bit of the envy. But on the bigger question, it seems you're both united in the fact that you do believe that there is a a redistribution of, of wealth that needs to happen. There's a yeah. real problem caused by the demographics, actually combined with this change in social things. So huge surge in, in uh, population growth by the baby boomers, followed by a sharp decline in birth rates. So actually you don't have replacement in the jobs market, but you do have an awful lot of old people who are going to have to be looked after when they get toothless and gaga. And also that housing has now become an asset. A house should be a home. And that's one of the reasons we've got a property shortage in the country. Yeah, and uh, but again, we, that comes back to you then need to do what they're doing in London and say, actually, we need to have a certain quantity of properties that are built for people who are residents of this city, not for overseas investors. And, and, and again, that slightly brings you back to the point, that is it this generation's fault or is it the fault of, of government? Well, anyway, we've had a bit of a ding-dong on that one. Next... You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Tuck, Joy Ladico, and Quentin Peel. Coming up next, we're going to look at can a private business do what the police forces are meant to do? Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe.
Welcome back. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Tuck. Still with me are Joy Lodico and Quentin Peel. Here in the UK, the country's first private police force is set to be rolled out across the nation following its success in three of London's wealthiest neighbourhoods. The police force, called My Local Bobby, is able to make citizens' arrests and gather evidence to launch private prosecutions. Quentin, is this uh, just a terrible reflection on the, the state of the funding of British police, that there is a, a need for this, or is it more, do you think, that actually in, in posh neighbourhoods they feel there's a need for it? I think it's the latter. I don't think there is a real need for it, although I think that the police are underfunded and, and desperately need more. I think it's an absolutely ghastly idea. It reminds me of either sort of vigilantism or it is just, as you say, the very wealthy who can afford sort of a little bit of private policing. I think it's, it undermines the, the police force itself, which does an amazing job on not very much money. They're overwhelmed not just by short money, though. They're overwhelmed by bureaucracy. The amount of time you have to spend if you go down to the cop shop filling out forms and so on is insane. And that's time when they could perhaps be out on the beat. Joe, what's your take? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of gen- <clears throat> generally in favour of a, a split in kind of private and public that if people can afford stuff. That's absolutely fine. Pay for it on top. But actually, in truth, any serious crime is still going to get referred to the police. So it still keeps their workload high, if not potentially higher, because they've actually got people investigating, um, you know, burglaries. The police really are struggling in the UK at the moment, particularly in London. Uh, There's a huge number of burglaries that aren't attended. There's a sudden spike in knife crime that they're not at the moment getting on top of. It's a problem that I think they will do eventually. Um, uh, And I can't see how this in particular helps... um, not just the kind of general policing, but also the notion that uh, London is a kind of safe and happy place. I mean, it's it's beginning to kind of turn us into a ghettoised city whereby one particular area gets extra attention. Um, you know, the police is a state service in the UK and always has been. I know it hasn't doesn't occur like that in every country around the world, but it's one of those things we hold quite dear. And I would like to sort of see it carry on. Uh, I'm... Being devil's advocate, I guess it's true. I bet it's the same for healthcare, isn't it? You think of that as a state provision, but we allow for private healthcare, and we say actually, wealthy people who've got some money and want to go and pay for their own operation, they should be allowed to kind of step out of the system. And the argument has always been actually, it takes some pressure off the, the National Health Service because these people aren't kind of banging on the door saying, you know, I've got an ingrowing toenail, or whatever. But, you know, what's wrong with that than doing it with the police service as well and saying, look, you know, here's a whole area that will no longer be bothering the police about minor insurrections and minor infringements of you know traffic whatever they will be sorted out locally and the rest will be done because we've always had like neighborhood watch and things and so we've always been trying to get people to do citizens policing i think that security is surely the ultimate public good it is the ultimate thing that should be delivered publicly and it's not only that my surname is Peel like Sir Robert Peel <laughs> who founded the police force but um, I think it, it is absolutely of paramount importance that it is a public service and that therefore it is seen as independent not just working for the rich rather than the poor not just dealing with the sort of crimes that are I mean I, I noticed that one of the things that they've been rather good at is dealing with the theft of intellectual 
property. Well, hang on. I mean, that isn't the sort of crime, no. knife crime on the streets that ought to be dealt with. There was another little detail I read about them, which is that they would move on undesirables from the street. Now, the street is actually a public space, and you may be an undesirable in one uh, local police force's eyes or the local resident's eyes, but actually in the eyes of the law, you're perfectly justified to be on that street. And that in itself is a form of kind of social cleansing going on. Uh, and I felt rather strongly about yeah, that. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you, but I wonder your and it is it's terrible that you end up with places with a better police because of wealth but we had a tiny incident outside our house a couple of weeks ago where two kids had hotwired a were trying to hotwire a, a scooter they'd stolen and it was they were wiring literally outside my house so i went out and had a, a gentle word and they 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 left but the, by this point they'd started the engine on the motorcycle so then i phoned the police and said there's a stolen bike outside i can give you the registration and they said it's not an emergency call. You need to phone this this number. It will be logged. Uh, we hope to come to you in the next 24 hours. And I was like, well, actually, the motorbike is running outside my front door. So anyway, the motorbike ran for 14 hours. And then the kids came back and took the motorbike because I'd phoned three times the police by then. They said, there's nothing we can do. We're super busy this weekend. But you must live in such a safe area to have a motorbike running that lasted 14 hours <laughs> well, on the street. It was just like, oh, my God, this is like, <laughs> so weird. Now... If there was someone you could call and say, look, this bike could be returned to its owner within like 20 minutes, all you need to do is scan the registration plate, I think you'd be tempted to use that service. And, and would that be a bad thing? That the, you know, one, the guy would have got his, his scooter back. Two, uh, a scooter I pr- presume is then used for robbing people with their mobile phones would have been prevented. And I don't blame the police. They, they, they had bigger things to deal with than a, a But a how are you going to finance that service? Are you going to say, I'll give you 20 quid if you get this back to its owner? Or are they financed just by all the residents of the area? They're financed by subscriptions, you- but they're also financed by taking people to court and successful prosecutions um, mean that actually that's how they make their money. Quent- Quentin's brought his phone so, in, so we're having a little bit of musical accompaniment <laughs> here, which, which yeah, uh, I think he's trying to distract me from my... Um, argument I th- or maybe someone's kind of chipping with a few things i'll tell you how we're going to do it quentin i'm going to take another ten thousand pounds off you and, I, and i'm going to be the one who mugs you of your phone on the way out as well by the way in the hot wi- on the hot wired bike <laughs> anyway the, we're, we're, we have a, a, another tiny story which is a bit of a diplomatic incident because it emerged that uh, important etiquette guidelines weren't quite followed to the letter when the Japanese Linda leader, Eva, even Shinzo Abe and his wife dined with the uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as his residence at the beginning of this month. They were served a top-notch meal by an Israeli celebrity chef. Everything went well until it was time for the dessert, which was a selection of chocolate pralines artistically arranged inside a shiny metal shoe. Sadly, there's not much more despised symbol in Japan than the humble shoe. You won't find shoes in a house, in an office, or even in parts of Parliament. So it didn't go down too well. And I must say, looking at this picture, it's like... It's not just a diplomatic incident, it's a taste incident. It's like, it's like it's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. It's like a, a polished kind of brogue with a 
it looks like an old sock stuffed in it and a few chocolates. What was what was going on here, Quentin? Not not a good look. It's terrifying. I wouldn't be seen dead in shoes like that. But fortunately, it's an <laughs> iron shoe. I think apparently it's a, by some wonderful sculptor. I mean, you cannot believe how crass something like this is. But I fear that we have among our wonderful, revered leaders these days a number of people capable of such crassness. Donald Trump springs to mind. Boris Johnson springs to mind. Silvio Berlusconi perhaps. You know, they don't they don't care, I think, the effect of what they say or do has on other people. They just want to attract attention and get a laugh. Joy, just, have you got any f- other favourite faux pas from the, the world of diplomacy? Oh, well, there's, uh, I mean, there's sort of wonderful ones. I mean, there was, um, I mean, there, there's also, there's uh, obviously Kennedy when he starts saying he's been Ina Berliner and uh, embarrassing himself. But I think my favourite in terms of sort of what is meant to be a gift and that's rejected is when Margaret Thatcher goes off for the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution to see François Mitterrand with a Mitterrand with a first edition of A Tale of Two Cities as her gift, which in which the revolutionaries are all kind of bloodthirsty, cruel, nasty individuals. And somebody clearly just hadn't read the book or or were delivering a very subtle message. Well, I think it might be deliberate, you see. I mean, what about I mean, what about that famous occasion when Vladimir Putin brought his great dog in oh. to a meeting with Angela Merkel? It was clearly not a faux pas. It was deliberately done to try and scare her because he knew she was scared of dogs. But the, the, the sort of, I mentioned Boris Johnson. What about that extraordinary and occasion last year when he went to Myanmar, to Burma, went to a Buddhist shrine and there was heard to be quoting the road to Mandalay (laughs) about the great god Bud, which is a mud statue and so on. And the British ambassador had to say rather loudly, not appropriate. <laughs> no, he's well, I think he could have his own whole book book of them, couldn't he? But oddly, he, he kind of gets away with it. But there's something about the shoe incident, which I don't think should be forgiven. It looks like something from one of the a very tawdry British TV show, but, but rather entertaining. Come dine with me. It, look like, it looks like a serving suggestion from that. But anyway, that was the Netanyahu's and this is us. And that brings us to the end of the show. Joy Ladico and Quentin Peel, thank you so much for joining us on Midori House. Today's show was produced by Marcus Hippie. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and also by Amber Roberts. And our studio manager was David Stevens. There's more music next than at 1900 hours. It's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily, which is at 2200 hours London time. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 hours London time. But from me, Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.